Welcome to Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast, a podcast intended not just for parents or caregivers, but individuals seeking guidance around challenging behaviors or recurring and negative patterns in your life. Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast aims to have you asking, who am I parenting here, my child or myself? This podcast has a vision of you, the adult, stumbling upon a new relationship with the child you once were. Parenting is no easy task, but it doesn't have to be a burden. We are happy you are here. Welcome back to Hashtag Parenting Who Podcast. Today we're going to be chatting with Evelyn Plattenberg-Smith. And Evelyn works at a men's homeless shelter in a big city. And she is going to share with us some perspective on what it's like to work with that high needs population. Welcome to episode 16. So Evelyn has a bachelor's degree of public affairs and policy management, a master of developmental studies international, a bachelor of social work and a master's of social work. She speaks a little bit about her transition from working for federal government and policy into a career around and finding herself doing what she's passionate about, a career about helping others. She talks about the importance of self in a, in a helping relationship and being her best self in that relationship and what it is that she does to get there. She talks about herself as a tool that she uses for her work and I can relate to that. Working with a vulnerable population, we definitely, and for those of you who listen to my other podcasts, you'll definitely hear a theme around self and knowing what that is and what that means and how to be the best version of you in order to be working and helping others. Evelyn also talks about how she works with the men that she is supporting in helping them to align well first of all to discover their values what's what is it that they value in their lives and helping to align their behaviors with their values and so you can imagine that getting to the point where you're homeless and accessing services related to a a homeless shelter that quite likely your behaviors up until that point have been misguided and so helping the men to recognize truly what are their values what is important to them what are their needs what are their wants and then beginning to kind of restructure their behaviors towards their value system evelyn also talks a bit about language and how 
being aware of the language that we use in working with a vulnerable population, it helps to remove or minimize barriers for recovery. And it's really important to be attuned with the individual that you're working with in order to connect and to help heal. And that really is the value of a therapeutic relationship. And then she talks, and this again is, it's so interesting now because I'm 16 episodes into my podcast and there's so many themes that are emerging. We as therapists, we tend to hear things in themes rather than specifics or we hear the specifics, but then we sort of just with our training and our education, we just do this natural, I guess, summary of a person's experience and we kind of break it down in themes. And so one of the themes that you'll hear throughout a lot of my podcasts and this this one is no exception, is understanding boundaries and how to communicate your boundaries to others in setting the boundaries and also reinforcing the boundaries and how that's so important to valuing self. She also touches and talks a little bit about family of origin and understanding the impact on the adult version of you of your historical family of origin and how sometimes we become trapped in others' expectations and that then becomes who you are as as an adult, as a parent, as a partner. And I really enjoyed this podcast with Evelyn. She and I met actually, we interned at the same place years ago when we did our master's degrees and I knew right away she was someone that I wanted to connect with. She's very smart and very passionate about her work and I hope you all enjoy this. Thank you for joining my podcast. (laughs) Happy to be here. Yeah. You and I have been talking about this for a little while so I'm really happy that our schedules were able to connect today and that we could have this chat and I'm really excited about that. It's going to be good. Yeah so uh, Evelyn if you want to take a minute and introduce yourself, maybe let the listeners know a little bit about you and how you became a social worker and how you found yourself working at a men's homeless shelter. For sure. Um, So I am a uh, registered social worker with the Ontario College of Social Workers and Social Service Workers. Um, I I guess I started out as a bit of a policy wonk. I used to work for a federal government think tank um, after my my first degree, um, which was a really, really cool experience. And I, I had a lot of mentors there that really helped me um, helped me grow and understand kind of how our system works here and the ins and outs of, um, I'll say, government life. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a really, really fabulous experience, but I was really encouraged to get a, a master's degree if I wanted to can- continue on with that. Um, so I did go and I got a master's of international development studies um, in mm-hmm. Australia, which was a fun adventure. Mm-hmm. But when I came back, I had a, a series of unfortunate events that led me to not being able to follow through with an internship I'd had lined up. Um, and then hiring freezes galore here in Ottawa. So mm-hmm. I started volunteering with the Ottawa Distress Centre and I loved it. It was mm. such a fulfilling experience and I was kind of like, whoa, you mean I could 
I could do this as my job. <laughs> That's awesome. Talk to people and support them. And yeah. that could be a thing. Um, it really resonated with you that that volunteer work. Oh, it just it was it was interesting. It was fulfilling. It was, you know, I, I love the organization. I, I don't have enough good things to say about them. The training they offer to their volunteers is top notch. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely fabulous. And, and to this day in my personal practice, um, the skills I learned there, I draw on every single day. And um, you know what, uh, just to interject, I did uh, victim services in, yeah. in Free County many, many years ago. And we did 60 hours of training. We met three hours for several weeks and absolutely bang up. The training was amazing. And I absolutely draw on that training in, in all my psychotherapy and counseling work. It's so true. Oh, it, it, 100%. And it's, and like, that was the same thing with the distress under 60 hours of training, assist, all this stuff and, and amazing support from the staff there too. Like the, the trainers and the full-time staff, they were they were just above and beyond. I, I, even when I was working at the farmer's market, they'd come and say hi and stuff. So fabulous organization, amazing people. And, and for other people who are interested in social work um, or maybe not social work in particular, but maybe getting more involved with their community and helping yeah. out and giving back, I, I've really recommended people volunteer there. Um, I think some people yeah. are a little intimidated by it mm-hmm. because some of the content you get can be quite intense, but you mm-hmm. don't know if you can do it or not until you try. Um, and, and it was yeah. people in my personal life who were disclosing things to me where I was like, okay, I, I want to be able to support my, my friends and family through these really, really difficult disclosures in a way that's mm-hmm. positive, supportive and healing. Um, mm-hmm. Because sometimes somebody will say something and you know, you might be the first person they told and your response is, is critical. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. Huge. Like hugely critical. So yeah. that really informed my decision when I was looking for places to volunteer. I had a hard time deciding between the distress center and the auto rape crisis center because they're also an amazing organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the the mental health aspect that really drew me to the the distress center. Yeah. Um, and as, as a result of that, I, I went and did the BSW and then the MSW at Carleton. Um, cool really cool experience. Loved it. Um, but when you asked me about how I got into the men's shelter, um, my first, my first student placement in the BSW, um, was at one of the men's homeless shelters in Ottawa. And I loved it. It was, you know, eye opening and so rewarding and just, it was fun. Mm-hmm. I I loved the, the population getting to go in and chat with the guys and, talk to them about what was going on in their lives and supporting them through some really difficult stuff. Um, but I have to say the, the biggest things I've learned and the greatest lessons I've received, not only in, as a professional, but also personally, um, has, has come from my clients. Uh, yeah. And the insights and perspective that they can give you is, is just amazing. Um, yeah. And even the accountability for myself in terms of the work that I have to do for me, um, you know, it's huge. And Mm -hmm. if I'm going to ask these people to do some really, really difficult emotional, psychological work, then I need to be willing to do that myself. 
Um, yeah, at least that's and, how I feel about it. Yeah. Oh no, a hundred percent. And they're in, uh, in a lot of the podcast episodes that I do with other therapists, it's definitely a conversation that we're having. And it's also something that I want through this podcast to normalize for yeah. uh, others to know that. And I, and I say that often with my clients, I don't sit here and claim to be any kind of expert in your life at all. I mean, I'm human no. and we're having a human experience here. Exactly. And like, exactly. Like you said, I can't expect you to do X, Y, and Z if I myself am not willing to go there. And um, it's so important <laughs> yes. to, for us as therapists in working with a really vulnerable population to have our, pardon me, but our shit in check. Yep. And uh, we're human and we're going to have that shit that comes with us by nature of being human and nothing uh, less and nothing more. And uh, so I think that the sign of a good therapist is someone who acknowledges and really wants to be the best of themselves to be able to do the work. And then, like you were saying, reap the rewards of the work that you do. And you can't do that if you're not healthy. Yeah, you can't do that. That's exactly it. Well, and, and one of the things that you see sometimes in people who haven't done their own work is that they start working their own issues out with their clients right. and and that's that's the exact opposite of our role and what we're supposed to be there for yeah you know if, if I'm in a session or if I'm in a group I'm putting myself away mm-hmm. so that I can be completely and totally focused mm-hmm. on the other people who are there because that's what they need from me mm-hmm. you know they need to know that that I'm listening that they're being heard that yeah. I'm there for them that's yeah. that's my role and if I'm not doing my work a if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not healthy, then you can't support other people. Mm-hmm. That's just and you shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't be working. Yeah, yeah, right. Burnout and then the whole like um, you should ethically. Be yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's um, it's one of those things where you can see it come up sometime, and you're like, ooh. Um, but I know for myself, the like, especially because a lot of the work I do, I hear a lot of trauma. Um, and that can be really overwhelming sometimes is that I have a fabulous counselor mm-hmm. um, and I, I, I plug, I plug, you know, going and seeing a, a therapist, a counselor, somebody who you can talk to um, as being one of the biggest gifts you can give yourself. Oh, I honestly. say that all the time, Evelyn. Yeah. It's a gift that you can give yourself and your family too. Like, like you were saying earlier, like being available and supporting your family and, you know, um, being a parent and all that, that kind of stuff. It's, it's a gift for sure. And if you can't, like, I know for myself, the work I've done and and the skills I've developed as a result of that, it means that in my personal relationships, I'm able to communicate my emotional needs in a way that isn't aggressive or passive aggressive or manipulative, straightforward, and it's authentic and it's genuine. And, And when you're able to do that, the connection you have with others is it's just so much stronger. Um, and and, fulfilling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, also the, as a as a counselor, you know, as a, a social worker, I'm the tool that I use in my work. Mm-hmm, yeah. And if, if I'm not a, you know, a well-oiled machine, the people who are going to suffer from that are my clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as you were saying before, we work with people who are very vulnerable. And, you know, I've yet to work with one of my clients. So I currently work in a, in a longer-term treatment center for trauma and addiction. And my my population I'm working with is adult men, um, most of whom are, are homeless um, and struggling with addiction. And I have yet to work with somebody who has not experienced trauma. 
Um, and when I say trauma, like we have the academic definition of trauma, which is anything that kind of overwhelms our, our system and our ability to cope. Um, but it's that most of my clients experienced some kind of childhood trauma, which was never addressed. There was never that early intervention piece. And the issues just got compounded. And then they they get re-traumatized and, and get involved in things which hurt them even more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And as they go through this process, you know, I'm working with sometimes men in their 50s and 60s who've, who've never had support. Mm-hmm. You know, and the issues are so much more complex and in depth and the work that they have to do is is so much more overwhelming sometimes mm-hmm. uh, as a result of that. And, you know, if you look at the research, everything says early intervention, early intervention, early intervention. Um, mm-hmm. You can see the difference it makes. Yeah, definitely. And um, they go hand in hand. They, yeah. they really, really do. Yeah. And I wanted to know from your perspective uh, something we had talked about in our communication before our podcast today was mm-hmm. the w- one of the I guess I don't know if it's a trait or one of the common pieces to the population that you work with is a sense of self-loathing. Oh yeah, overwhelming, overwhelming. And I yeah, and like I did a podcast and we talked about shame. And when yeah. I hear self-loathing, I feel like that. Self-loathing is, is another dimension. It's shame, but is it is it magnified like times a hundred? Is that's kind of how I see it. Well, and, and it's one of those things where as a society, we don't give people the skill set to understand our own emotions and bodies and, and how we actually function as emotional creatures, right? Like biologically, when we feel emotions, they're they're physical feelings. And people aren't aware of that. We think of them in an abstract. And trying to convey that to clients who they're not even aware of the fact that they hate themselves, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and it it kind of comes out in ways where self-harm behaviors that that might not register as regular self-harm behaviors, Um, Mm -hmm. sometimes addiction in and of itself and the patterns of going out and using and the ritual around that, that can be self-harm, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and that it's so much of the time, especially when you're looking at trauma, especially if it started early on, um, development of trauma during childhood and stuff like that, the lessons that they've learned about who they are as people, how they fit into the world, what the world is like, who they can trust, who they can't trust, all those things, it it basically creates this, I'm going to call it a recipe um, for, for, for shame. And then not being able to identify shame and work with shame and know what that feels like in your body, that turns into self-loathing. It turns into them not knowing what's going on. And as a result, acting on emotions they can't identify or, or cope with. Ooh, that's huge, Evelyn. That's really, really big what you just said there. I love that. Well, and it's, it's something that in my own personal work, mm-hmm. it was kind of a, an aha moment for me when I was able to finally sit down and say, wow, what's going on for me right now is shame. This is what it feels like in my body. And this is how it makes me act. And by tuning into ourselves and identifying those things for ourselves, we we get to take power back over ourselves to a certain extent, right? Because no emotions are good and bad. They just are. They're just Um, how we react to them and the behaviors that we engage in as a result of them um, that, that, you know, are the measure of, who we are as people and what we want to do with ourselves and how we fit into the world. Um, and if we're not 
looking at ourselves and we're not aware of those things, how can we ever take steps to make sure our behaviors align with our values so that we can feel good right. about ourselves, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's ultimately the goal, right? Is the behavior is knowing the behaviors, knowing yourself enough that because when we feel the emotions in our body, that's going to feel very different for you as it is for me, as yes. it is for someone you know down the street, and so working at recognizing any behaviors that are steering us in a direction that is away from ourselves in order to avoid feeling the sensation in our body that becomes so uncomfortable that we want to numb it with with some kind of addictive behavior or a distraction that is um, pacifying in, in, in the short term and it feels okay, but as therapists, we know that in the long term, it really, it, it just is that compounding. It just is that recipe for compounding um, the, and turning things into, I guess, like more of a complex trauma situation. Well, and, and that's exactly it, Julie. And it's, it's so interesting to, once you've done your own work and you've done, especially shame, I, I really feel that shame is a huge issue, especially in my field. Um, and, and I really see my perspective on addiction is that it's a symptom. Mm-hmm. It's a oh, symptom absolutely. Going yeah, yeah. There's mm-hmm. always an underlying cause if it's trauma, if it's mental health issues, um, you know, chronic pain, head injury, whatever. There's so many different things that we become so uncomfortable with. And, and even just in terms of, and I'm a structural social worker, so I always kind of take a step mm-hmm. back and look at the macro um, from a societal perspective, where we're, we teach people to numb out. We teach people not to deal with their emotions. Being an emotional, being in tune with your emotions is a bad thing. It has negative connotation. Um, Especially and, as a man, right? Oh, oh men? You know, yeah. I remember doing one group. This was a long time ago. Um, it was just a, it was a community group. And I was, I was a student then and watching the facilitator, who was just brilliant, um, do her thing at the time. And she was asking the guys, you know, what feelings are you comfortable feeling? What, what feelings are you comfortable expressing? What emotions are you comfortable expressing? And they were able to identify four of, you know, the broad spectrum of emotions we feel. And they were, what was it? Happy, angry, horny, <laughs> hungry, or something like that. It was either hungry or tired. And mm-hmm. I remember being like, well, horny's not an emotion. <laughs> it's definitely a physical sensation, yeah. but it's not an emotion. Yeah. And neither is the, the hungry, tired. So the only two emotions that group of men, it was probably about between, it was probably around 30 guys in that uh-huh. room, all adult men. Um, and the only emotions they felt that they could really experience and convey were happiness and anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are we doing, you know, as a society to our men, if, if as a group, these are the emotions they feel they can access. You know, we're taking dynamic, complex human beings and forcing them into these little boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you work with them and you're trying to access these other emotions and help them identify them for themselves, it's, it's such a battle because of the shame that's also associated with just feeling those emotions for these men. Well, like you said, there's zero skill set learned as a society around these things. Zero. Yeah. Zero, zero, zero. And, and it's something even that I, I saw in myself and had mm-hmm. to learn for myself in terms of my emotional regulation. Um, where, and, and that was so brilliant for me because now 
I can sit with clients and, you know, like you said before, it's, it's always going to be different for every person. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what anxiety looks like for me and feels like for me is going to be different than what somebody else experiences for anxiety. Um, but if I hadn't done my work, that work myself, and I know what processing looks like for me and how am I supposed to help clients access that part of themselves, right? Um, and when we're talking about language, because uh, um, that's what we use to communicate with each other, right? We, we also use physical cues, nonverbal communication, but by and large, we're restricted to the language that we use. Um, but what one word means to me, you know, it's going to have completely and totally different connotation for another person. Um, so being able to engage with somebody in a way that you can kind of establish, okay, well, when you say the word, I'm going to use the example of the word prison, because the word prison for me has a very, very different connotation than it does for my clients. You know, I've never been incarcerated. I don't know what that feels like. I don't know what that experience is like. I don't know um, what it's like to try to, to, to maintain relationships with family while you're incarcerated or get back into the workforce or, or reintegrate into society after I've been incarcerated. I don't know what that means like. So when I hear the word prison, it, it, that's just what it is. It's just a word. It's just a kind of abstract concept to me. Whereas somebody who's actually experienced that, that word's going to mean something completely different. Mm -hmm. And so in my work, trying to figure out what language I can use to, to match my clients so that we can have a dialogue about what's really going on for them in a meaningful way for them, right? It's not about my understanding of things. It's about their understanding of things. Well, um, and what's coming up for me as you're saying that is how I imagine, and I don't know if frustrated is the right word or just maybe disconnected, but for that individual who has this experience in prison, when they're trying to work through some of those things with a helper like yourself. Yep. But if you're not playing off the same definition in terms of the language that's used, we don't want there to be so much over here, so, so to say, that is ex him, him or her explaining what the experience of prison is like. Yep. Because that takes away from the actual raw experience itself. Does that make yes. sense? Yeah. Oh, 100%. And that's why being attuned to your client is so important, right? Because the things that I can't pick up on through language with them, and especially if I'm working with a client where English isn't their first language, right? Oh, yeah. And then there's that for sure. Well, and it's it's something that, you know, I've worked with clients who are deaf. I've worked with clients who, um, you know, their their first language might be, you know, Spanish or Punjabi or French or whatever. And, and there's definitely, you know, some issues in terms of, of communication, just in terms of language, but also sometimes in terms of cross-cultural communication as well, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm not emotionally available, open and attuned and connected with my client, I'm going to miss out on a lot of the things that are going on for them because my language might not match up with them and my understanding of that language might not match up. So when I'm using myself as a tool to connect, well, that sounds kind of funny, um, <laughs> to connect with one of my clients in the work that I'm doing, my rapport with them is so critical because if I haven't established a safe space for them and if, if they don't feel like they can trust me in that, then the emotional connection that we have together and the, that's the connection you do your work through. It, well, um, right. This is exactly what I'm thinking. Like when we talked about self-loathing earlier, <sighs> we can't even get to the depth of that if we can't get through all that you just spoke about. Because well, and that's it, Julie. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Sorry, I totally cut you off because I was like, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. 
excited about that. No, that's good. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's huge. Well, and it makes me so grateful to the mentors I've had in the field um, and to my own counselors who have shown me that, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and being able to learn from a number of different approaches. And, you know, we can talk about all the different evidence-based theories and approaches and interventions and all that stuff. But when push comes to shove, I truly believe that the, the most important part of a therapeutic, you know, relationship is the connection you have to that person. And, and I would always encourage people, you know, finding a counselor is kind of like dating. You don't have to just settle for the first one you get, you know, you want to make sure that you feel comfortable with that person that, you know, you feel emotionally connected to them, that you feel like they care about you, that you're, they're listening to, that you feel heard. Um, one of the most damaging things I've heard from, from clients, and, and this is even a, an experience that I've had for myself, is going to see a counselor that you don't feel yes. um, comfortable with, because mm-hmm. that can be really detrimental too. So yeah. I really want to encourage people that if, if you know, they got something going on, and it doesn't have to be a major thing, right? I think a lot of people feel that if they're seeking out counseling um, or any kind of support like that, that it's because something massive and devastating has happened. Um, I would always encourage people to, to seek out that kind of support before something massive and devastating happens. I, yeah, I just shared something to that effect on my social media because uh, I thought it was really important. It was, a, it was a great post that someone had done, a great blog, uh, to further that discussion, right? Yeah. Because so much is talked about, about how you don't have to be alone and you know all of these sort of after-the-fact reasons for going to see a therapist or a counselor, but it truly doesn't need to be after the fact. It can be, I I call it mental health wellness. Yes. It's not just mental health, it's mental health wellness and how and what can you do for yourself in those times where things are going okay. And that's the time to build up your reserves. That's the time to seek out new strategies so that, yeah, it's huge. And we miss that too. Well, and the other thing too, is one of the things I try to, to really communicate to my clients is that if we're not practicing these coping skills when we're doing okay, they're yes. not going to be ready for when we're not okay. Yeah. You know, I've never done anything where I'm brilliant at it right off the bat. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's something where I've had to practice things. Um, I've had to fail at things and I've had to try again. And if we don't practice those things for ourselves, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it'll be devastating. Yeah. Whereas if I take preventative steps, it's like putting on sunscreen when you know you're going to be outside for like mm-hmm. 10 hours mm-hmm. um, or, or if wearing a hat or a long sleeve, like mm-hmm. taking steps ahead of time to prevent things from going wrong will pay off for you in the long run with dividends you can't even imagine, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and especially for children, it's one of those things now that I see in my clients where a lot of what we have to get into is family of origin stuff. Um, around the the core beliefs that they've created for themselves. And I know I'm getting kind of jargony there with the whole core belief things, but one of the ways I, I communicate that to my clients is it's just, it's how we feel about ourselves. The, the core tenets of what we think of ourselves and the world around us. And that's formulated when we're very, very young. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many different things that can go into that. It's not just our family, it's society, it's our peers, our biology, a whole bunch of different stuff that can come into play. Mm-hmm. But by recognizing what those things are, we, we have more control over our behavior. And I think that when push comes to shove, that's what most of us want because when we, you know, we were talking about shame before, um, I kind of, sometimes I see the gap between our actions and our values 
call that the shame gap sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when our actions don't line up with our values, sometimes it can feel like we're betraying ourselves to a certain extent because we're doing things that we're not going to be proud of down the line. Um, And if we're doing those things, like say you get into an argument with somebody you love and you just blow them away, you devastate them emotionally because you were hurt and afraid in that moment, you can't take those words back. They've been Mm -hmm. said. You might be able to apologize and you might be able to work through those things. But, you know, for me personally, if I can take a step back and say to my partner, I'm really upset right now. Um, I'm going to need a little bit of time to cool off before we have this conversation again, because I think it's an important conversation to have. And I don't want to, you know, derail it because I'm feeling vulnerable right now. Um, it's, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. And you know what? If you're just not in the mood Oh, if you're feeling like you're in a bad mood, other people are not invited to that space. <laughs> yeah, Julie, yes. right? So if they yes. walk in there, it's okay to say, you're not invited to my bad mood right now. I just need to have my space. And that's part of that recognizing yourself and value, valuing yourself in a sense that, you know, you're going to have those low moods. Oh, it's just going to be those days that you wake up that it's going to be down and others don't need to like make it worse and creep into that and ask questions and try and understand it. It's, it is what it is. And you know, when you have the skills, you can work through it and others don't need to, to join you. Well, that's it. And 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 I love that how you're saying that, because I think that's another big thing that is a huge, you know, we're talking about self-loathing. Um, yeah. That's a big thing I notice in my my work all the time. It's, it's pretty brutal sometimes. Sometimes I feel like if yeah. I can get a client to acknowledge one positive thing about themselves that they mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, I go home being like, yes, mm-hmm. that was an awesome day. Um, well, that might sound kind of depressing for some people, but it's a win. You take the wins, you take the wins. Um, but it's also, oh, I just totally forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> you were talking about how helping people find one good thing in the day. Oh, yeah. So the, we were talking about the self-loathing and shame as a theme, but we were also talking about skills. And, and one of the big skills that you just kind of highlighted on there was, it was boundary setting. Yes. Um, where if, if other people aren't invited and I need this space for myself to get to where I need to be, how do I communicate that to other people? And how do I say that to other people? And depending on how you grew up um, and, you know, I know for myself, I, I grew up as a doormat, you know, somebody else needs me. Okay, 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 I'll do whatever I need to do to help that person to my own detriment a lot of the time and, and being able to say, no, I need this for myself. Um, being able to set that boundary and, mm-hmm. and not just set it, but reinforce it mm-hmm. so that when people challenge it or try to violate it, I can still hold it up in, in a flexible and gentle way, but mm-hmm. have that there for myself. Mm-hmm. Huge skill. Well, and yeah, I mean, the reinforcing it is, is a big part of that. There's the, you know, acknowledging that you can set boundaries, that you're within all of your rights to set boundaries and you should set boundaries, but also in how to do that, but also in the reinforcing, because once you start to set boundaries, it throws others off. Oh, huge. <laughs> need you to be that certain something to them and get their needs met. And so... Oh. That's, that's something we, I see a lot at work too, where it's the, the scapegoat, you know, a lot of my clients are the black sheep in the family. And when they start to do well again, it makes people uncomfortable, even though they want their loved ones to, to do well, and they don't want them to be struggling with addiction and all that stuff. It still is hard for them sometimes to, to see these people doing well and maybe not needing them in the same way anymore or, or, you know, or them doing well. Yeah. And sometimes it's a reflection of, 
well, this person is doing well. Now I have to look at myself. And, mm-hmm. and that's uncomfortable. We don't like looking at ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it is uncomfortable. And by and large, we will do anything to avoid being uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Um, that's, I think that's human nature. Nobody likes being uncomfortable. But mm-hmm. one of the things we have to do is, is, is get comfortable being uncomfortable. Oh, I was, you just literally took the words <laughs> out of my mouth because years and years ago, I, ascended, uh, I attended a workshop and I wasn't even doing therapy at the time. And uh, it was for a big company. And anyways, the facilitator there, Ross Buchanan was his name. And uh, that was one of his main messages was you need to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. Because that's how we grow. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things where uncomfortable emotions are part of our life, mm-hmm. you know, and they're there for a reason. We, we've developed these over time as a survival instinct and in terms of how we interact with our environment and others, like our uncomfortable feelings are, are critical to our well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether we like it or not, it's impossible to always be happy, right? Mm-hmm. We, we push for this happy, happy, happy all the time. It's not reasonable. It's not realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can't get one without the other. You won't even be able to recognize, so I think sometimes, some of the more positive feelings without the negative ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to, to, to learn how to sit in those feelings mm-hmm. and just not distract yourself with TV or video or, mm-hmm. you know, wine or work or, or smartphones, right? Anything. We were <laughs> always distracting ourselves to actually be able to sit in the moment with ourselves. Yeah. It, it can feel really overwhelming. Yeah. And sitting in the moment by ourselves with our phones in our hands is not the same as sitting in, no. <laughs> and trust me, I know, because I've tried to justify that myself <laughs> so many times. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's not to, to induce shame. I think it's really just to bring forward the reality of the times that we live in. And, um, you know, and even just going back to the setting boundaries and how once someone does that, it sort of can be off-putting for those who know them. It's to to me, you know, people will say different things about why do you do this job or how do you do this job? And it's it's in that piece right there where the human aspect of who we are as people, as human beings, the it's fascinating to me the response that happens when someone else is getting well. Yes. And setting boundaries and how that just in the most ever so slightly way can offset those other people close in that person's life and can sometimes, and dare I say maybe even oftentimes, can send that other person who was getting well back into being unwell. Yes, yes. Because it's like, right, yeah, it's this like dynamic that goes back and forth and it's done at a subconscious level that, you know, people don't, and this is the thing, people, I don't believe for the most part, people aren't intentionally trying to maneuver this. It's a subconscious mammalian thing that is just happening around, you know, the dynamics or the hierarchy in the family or, or, you know, whatever that relationship is. And so that for me is really, really fascinating and, um, brings everything back to, uh, curiosity, which, you know, is a really great lens to look through some of the complexities of what we're talking about. Yeah. To look through it. Uh, curious lens takes away that shame. It takes away that judgment. It takes away that negativity, that toxicity. It's um, 
you know, being curious about being human is kind of cool. <laughs> and I would, I would pair that curiosity with the openness to hear what yeah. the other person has to say, right? Like mm-hmm. if we're engaging that curiosity, and I think curiosity is a huge tool for, for somebody in our field because there's absolutely no way I can understand what's truly going on with my client on the inside, right? Like I, I can, I can hypothesize, I can get to know them really well as a person and I, I can have some insight into what might be going on, but just as nobody else is going to be able to truly know what's going on with me, I'm not, I'm not privy to that in somebody else's head. I can't read mine. Um, and so being able to ask questions and being open to sometimes hearing stuff that I don't agree with, or I'm not comfortable with, or I don't like, um, but trying to put myself in their shoes, I feel like that's such a critical part of curiosity. And if we're not engaging that curiosity and we've just decided, no, I know what's going on. It's this, that, or the other thing. We stop learning. Mm-hmm. We stop truly experiencing the other person and we won't be able to meet them where they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love that you said that. And it's just, I also was thinking about boundaries and we're talking sometimes about roles, right? And the roles people can play in families and different dynamics. I think it's really important for, especially for children, and this might sound kind of weird, but teaching children that it's okay to set boundaries. Mm-hmm. It's okay to set boundaries with, with adults too, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. And that's something that I've really noticed is, is how hard it is to set boundaries in, in a child, parent, or caregiver kind of dynamic. Um, you know, everybody talks about that teenage rebellion and teenage pushback. And I think we need to, to recognize what a huge and critical part of development that is. It's, yeah. Where we, we're, we need to figure out who we are as individuals, not as, you know, what my role is within the family or, or, or what my parents think I should be or what my teachers think I should be, but who I want to be and who I think I should be. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't happen when you're a teenager, it's going to happen at another point in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's such a critical part of it. And, you know, it, experiencing that ability to, to say, no, this is me over here and that's you over there, mom and dad or caregivers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and seeing that distance for ourselves, that's so empowering for the individual. Yeah. And then you get to take ownership over your own actions. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I hear a lot is, you know, oh, you're blaming the parents, blaming the parents, blaming the parents. No, we're not blaming the parents. We're looking at where things might have come from for ourselves, but as an adult, I have to make choices about how I'm going to manage these things. So maybe the environment I grew up in wasn't conducive to me having the best emotional regulation or the best communication skills or being able to trust or whatever. And, and you know what? I truly believe that like most, if not all parents do the best they can with what mm-hmm. they have in the moment yep. and that they love their children and they want the best for them. Mm-hmm. Um, And that doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect because we're all human. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out, okay, so my parents did the best they could for me. And this is the point to where they got me. Where am I going to take this going forward? Mm -hmm. Um, And being able to take ownership for ourselves over our own emotions and our own behaviors and, and really looking at those. I just, I think that's something that's really important, but I think it's something that's really hard for for kids because again just I remember being a teenager like you couldn't pay me enough money to go back to being a teenager ever <laughs> ever like you could offer me the world on a silver platter and I'd be like nope no <laughs> like 
yeah. never again. Um, I had a, a trauma prof who used to say that puberty in and of itself is a traumatic event Yeah, um, right. because of how overwhelming it is. Yeah. Like, body's changing. Everything's changing. And so for somebody going through that, that's in, it's incredibly overwhelming and difficult, mm -hmm. but as a parent, and, and I'm not a parent, so this is secondhand kind mm -hmm. of stuff. I can't imagine how difficult it is to watch your child struggling and, and sometimes pushing back against you and lashing out against you and engaging in behaviors that, you know, having that, you know, developed, you know, adult brain where you can say, I can see the long-term consequences of this for you. You can't right now. You're not in a place where you can do that. I can't imagine how overwhelming it is to see your kids screwing up and failing and getting hurt and doing all those things. But if we don't let them do that, if we don't give them that space to figure out who they are, then they, they are going to get trapped in other people's expectations. Right. And trying to live up to those expectations and losing a sense of themselves, which then leads to making some decisions that maybe they wouldn't otherwise have done that goes against their morals, their values. Yeah. And then therein lies that perfect recipe that you talked about earlier that works towards uh, self-loathing and missing that piece of, love like loving ourselves essentially just well, becomes non-existent and I, I feel like that was a very convoluted way of saying what I was trying to say I'm not sure if I communicated it properly but it's that it's something that I see it in my clients a lot where if they didn't get the chance to really identify who they were mm -hmm. outside of their family of origin you're doing so much work around that there's mm -hmm. so much time spent looking at okay so you grew up in an environment where, you know, both your parents were using and, you know, your older siblings left the home as soon as they possibly could. So you were the one left cooking and cleaning and caring for your parents, like looking at what that does to a child in terms of their development and, and how they see themselves and the world and, and what the implications are for their relationships going on down the road and the skills that they're going to have as a parent or as a, a partner. It, it's, it's really important. Um, and I'm, I'm, what am I searching for here? Well, I think when we bring it back to the population that you work with, you see the other side of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you see the other side of the disarray, the chaos, the, uh, the lack of nurture, the lack of love, the lack of support. When you speak of family of origin, it's not about, like you said, shaming parents or blaming no, parents. No. It's about the reality of the situation, as it were. And, and because of the, the working with men in a, in a homeless situation, you see the other side of all that we're talking about. And, and that's it. Yes. You Thank know, you, Julie. <laughs> yeah. Because that's as I'm, as we're talking here and you know, our, I'll, to be fair, I'll put it out there for the listeners. We've had some technical difficulties with our, uh, with our podcast today, which I think we're seamlessly going to be able to put it together so that you all may not know that. But, uh, so it's been a little bit challenging to kind of keep our thoughts in, in, um, in contained essentially in order, yeah, for the podcast. But overall, uh, Evelyn, I, I really want to thank you for all of your information, your insight, your experience, and all that you can share for those who are listening around this um, sort of inner experience that you have working with uh, men in a homeless shelter. And I'm wondering if you could let us know just is what is something that listeners could do to assist or help 
in their community around, because there's a lot of stigma around, right? Oh my gosh, it's huge. So what in your perspective, in your position is really helpful on the inside? What do you see is really helpful for, for these men that people, I know donating time is one thing, but there's more than that, isn't there? I think the biggest thing, honestly, and it's not even somebody going to different organizations and making donations or volunteering time. I think it's taking a step back, tuning into ourselves and, and treating other people like people. Yes. Um, and and it, it can be something as small as making eye contact when you're walking down the street or giving somebody a smile or saying good morning. Like things like that make a huge, huge difference. And the experience that a lot of my clients have had, and and this is something else I want to put out there. You know, I, I recognize that I, I work with a population where a lot of the time some of the cases we're working with are, are more extreme. We have a lot of very yeah. serious mental health issues, a lot of serious brain injury. Um, just yeah, it, it can be quite extreme. The trauma, yeah. different life experiences, and stuff like that. Uh, and, and I recognize and I appreciate that, but when push comes to shove the issues that my clients face in terms of emotions and stuff like that, a lot of it's the exact same that somebody growing up middle-class in the suburbs might experience. And and the other thing is to also recognize that we have all sorts of different people from different backgrounds and walks of life coming through the shelter mm-hmm. and coming, you know, and, and it's like, we've had professors, we've had mm-hmm. incredibly brilliant professionals. We've had, you know, so many different, different yes. people. Um, and I know I'm only working with adult men, but just the the diversity of the population that comes through, it's not who you would expect. And the assumption it's that... not who you would expect. Yeah. It's, it's not I, who you would I, expect. Yeah. And I repeat that because I really want that message to be out there because it, it can be really infuriating to... Oh. Certain, yeah. You know, like that turning away on the street and then, you know... That person, and we didn't actually even talk about this, just how sensitive they are to picking up on those subtle nonverbal cues of turning away. Like talk about self-loathe and someone can't even like look and smile the way that they would, you know, out with their friends. That just adds to that sense of self-loathe. And so I really appreciate the fact that, you know, you're pointing out these little things that, that can be done. Well, and just, and then that's it. It's treat other people like they're human beings, treat people the way you yeah. would want to be treated. That's, I know that's kind of one of the cliche things we say, but it's true. It's, it's, if, if you treat other people like humans and see them as actual people rather than, you know, whatever category or box we put others into, we want to move away from that sense of the other and to okay. the fact that we're all people. Mm-hmm. And this is our community. Cause if we're living in this area, we're all living in this area together. This is our mm-hmm. community. These people who some people decide are unsavory or unsightly or whatever, they're part of your community too, whether you like it or not. Exactly. And you can't avoid it or you can try and avoid it, but it's still a part of you and it's still part of your community. Yeah. Um, and you're making me think of uh, a situation a couple of years ago, and I, I can't remember the specifics, but essentially it was a homeless person and uh, their dog. Uh, you know, sometimes oh. they'll have animals. And uh, someone from a business establishment that was located near where this person and their dog was I guess they would frequent, uh, made a statement on Twitter and, and put a photo out there, but it wasn't in kind at all. And there was huge backlash. And it was really 
difficult to, to see that somehow that person thought it was okay to make a comment. And I don't specifically remember what it was, but it might've been around, you know, don't drag your dog down. And it was all about the dog. And it was like, you know, this might be the only thing they have in their life is this pet, this animal, this, you know, like anyway, so we, and social media only blows things up into well, and it's one of those things where uh, why is it that we value the life of the dog more right. than the life of the person? Yeah, exactly. And ultimately, I mean, the tweet was taken down, the person apologized, but I, you know, I hope that that person learned something and checked in with themselves and, you know, held themselves accountable for sort of that misstep, I guess you could say, because we do have missteps. And, um, 100%. and we, yeah. we're all going to make mistakes and we're all going to do things that are ignorant and, and offensive. And it's about taking a stance where we learn from those things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one, I remember when I was doing my, my master's of social work, there was um, one of my classmates. She was awesome. I loved her to death. And she straight up said, we were having a discussion about racism. And she's like, we all need to recognize that we live in a society where there is rampant racism, sexism, homophobia, ageism, you know, classism, any sort of ism or mm-hmm. whatnot that's out there. It's, it's present and it's constantly in our faces. So mm-hmm. whether we acknowledge it or not, we internalize these messages yes. that we get. And if we're not tuned into ourselves, we have these unconscious prejudices and biases that are there simply by watching the TV shows that we choose to watch mm-hmm. or the music we listen to or the ads that are, you know, plastered mm-hmm. all over everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and one of the things I say to my clients is we advertisements work. We mm-hmm. internalize yeah. their messaging. You know, yeah. there wouldn't, it wouldn't be a billion dollar industry. Yeah. Um, if it didn't. If it didn't. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's, and, and even just the fact that so much of our, our economy and our, and our, our, you know, business is set up on, again, that self-loathing. I remember reading something online once that really struck me and it was, I always misquote things, so I'm sorry, (laughs) but it was saying that loving yourself is an act of rebellion because everything in our society is structured to make you feel insecure and inadequate, right? Um, If you look at- Oh, and then add social media onto that Instagram. Right? Like, and, and we're looking at, we are supposed to have I remember I have, I've got curly hair and I always wanted to have perfectly straight hair because that's what was, you know, proper and together and all those things. And it's just something as trivial as that, you know, can, can make somebody change how they go about their day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you look at makeup and the makeup industry, um, not just for women too, but for men, it's becoming an increasingly large mm-hmm. thing, dyeing our hair, doing all these things. It's, mm-hmm. it's always telling us that just who we are isn't good enough is inadequate. Right. And, and, and I'm not hating on, you know what, I love dressing up and going mm-hmm. out and mm-hmm. doing the makeup thing. That's fun for me, but it's a tool that I have that I can engage in and, and have fun with. It's not who I am as a person and being able to differentiate that is something that's really critical. Um, but it's, it's just, again, like with my clients and you know what, this is me being scattered with my ADHD brain, but (laughs) what you were saying about the the example you gave with the dog, um, there's an organization called community veterinary outreach that does some really, really cool work. Um, and it's, it's, you know, veterinarians and other people who engage with people who are, you know, generally have low income, don't have the same resources as others, but have pets because of, of what pets can give to us and what they provide for yeah, us. Yeah. Um, and so they, they offer free services. And this, I think it initiated in Ottawa, but it's rolled out across the country now. Mm. And um, they, they gather research and they actually publish peer-reviewed research on 
Hmm. How they're able to access humans and, and human health um, through their pets. So there's so many different dynamics to everything we look at. And I think that's one of the things we need to recognize is that in order for us to compute everything that's happening, we break things down to a very simplistic level mm-hmm. um, and that nothing is ever as simple as we want it to be. Wouldn't that be nice if things were actually <laughs> simple and it was just straightforward, but yeah, you know, no, it is, it is complicated and it is complex. And uh, I certainly have always thought this and I, I even more so and want to say it, the, the men that you work with are really lucky to have you and the commitment. Yeah. And I mean that wholeheartedly and the commitment that you have to be the best you and to reach into that passion that led you to do this work and be fully present for them there. I don't doubt that there aren't people who aren't walking away after an interaction with you, a changed person. And even if it's in a small way that for a moment they felt okay about themselves, that's, that's impactful. And thank you for what you do. Oh, Julie, you just gave me the feels. (laughs) (laughs) You deserve the feels. It's all good. So Evelyn, uh, that was really wonderful. And thank you again for your patience regarding the tech stuff. And I look forward to reconnecting with you again at some other point and maybe doing another podcast. I think it's one of those things where, you know, letting people know that we're all just people and that, yeah, like I, I love breaking down the definition of the word compassion and it's to suffer with, right? Yeah. And if, if we want to be compassionate with others, we have to learn to be compassionate with ourselves. And right. um, yeah, that can be a whole other topic is self-compassion, yeah. but yeah. But making space to just be humans. I think if we can honestly even just do it for a minute a day where we take a step back and work on that, we'd mm-hmm. see huge differences for mm-hmm. ourselves. And celebrating and celebrating being celebrating. human. Yeah, exactly. And, and all the foibles that come with it. Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to write that down. That can be the title of our next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> celebrating being human. That was really good. It, 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 it's something we need to do. Yeah, exactly. All right, Evelyn. Well, you have a good rest of the day. Awesome. Okay. Take care. Bye. Thank you for joining me today. Please remember that information provided in this podcast is not therapy and is not a substitute for receiving help from a licensed or regulated healthcare professional. For more information on this episode and links discussed here today, please see the show notes. Please also visit my website, which includes more resources and social media links, as well as ways of getting in touch with me at julieclarktherapy.com. 